Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. We're very happy to have with us today Mark Lender, author, editor of the 10 Key Campaigns of the American Revolution, a fantastic book which I've been pouring through. The stories are absolutely great. Mark and I as well have the feeling that the American Revolution has really been undersung and underscored. Uh, Mark has a Ph.D. in American history from Rutgers University. He's a professor emeritus of history at Keene University, from which he retired as vice president for academic affairs in 2011. He's the author and co-author of 11 books and many articles and reviews in early American social, military, and institutional history. He helped establish the Crossroads of the American Revolution National Heritage Area as their first vice president. He lives in Richmond, Virginia with his wife, Rutgers University librarian emerita and author Penny Booth Page. Mark, it's great to have you with us today on the show, and I'm really enjoying your book, The Ten Key Campaigns of the American Revolution. Well, thank you, John. I, uh, let me just say one thing. I wrote an essay in it. The editor of the volume is a friend of mine named Ed Langell. And uh, I think you gave me credit as editor there, too, which is which is great. It's a terrific volume, and I'm pleased to be affiliated with it. But Ed's a friend, and I thought I'd better give him credit there. I love the book. What I really like about it, a lot of the American history books, the ones that have to do with the Revolution, will take the whole story, and you get way too much in one book. What I like about this is it compartmentalizes the 10 strategic or key campaigns of the American Revolution. In the process of today's interview, I'd like you to name those campaigns and maybe and maybe really fully describe three or four of them uh, as best you can and kind of give us the background on them and what the story was and really pique the interest. The book itself uh, is a bit different from some approaches to the military history of the, uh, the American Revolution. Uh, many uh, books focus or, or uh, books or articles focus on a particular facet or a particular battle. What we tried to do here was broaden the context a bit. Uh, this is not necessarily battle-oriented. And, and by the way, I'm not denigrating uh, the focus on specific battles. I mean, I've done some of that myself. Most of the authors who were included in, in this, uh, the 10 key campaigns have done it. But the campaign focus is a bit different. It's a broader focus. It provides much better context for why these particular battles occurred and, and why they were or were not important. The, the context is important, though, because uh, a military campaign involves more than just fighting. It involves the logistical uh, support structure that, uh, that uh, undergirded the uh, military efforts on both sides, the, the British and the American side. It involved the civilians who were caught up in uh, the campaign as it moved uh, across country. It involved the political implications. Uh, sometimes battles occurred because commanders felt they were under political pressure to produce results. Political results flowed from the battles, good or bad, depending upon how things came out. So it, it's important to actually take the campaign context as a starting point. Uh, this is not just going to focus on a particular fight, but it's going to put it in context and explain through a campaign focus why that particular engagement was actually important. And that's what we tried to do throughout all of the 10 authors. And we begin, uh, you mentioned that there are 10 chapters, there are indeed, and it begins with the first um, engagements of the war. You, know, you can look at Lexington and Concord, then you get into the, uh, the New York campaigns, 
Then you look at the Philadelphia campaigns and the New York campaigns when you uh, it's not just around New York City, but we're talking northern New York and Canada and the implications for what happens when Americans tried to invade Canada did not go well. Uh, the British counterattack in, in 1776 was uh, competent, professional and overwhelmingly successful. But then um, you get some interesting facets. I, I can point to an essay by James Kirby Martin, uh, the, the fighting as the Americans pulled back and tried to defend New York State from the British invasion in 1776. And you deal with the great American traitor, Benedict Arnold. But in this context, he was the great American hero. It's, it's not just a, sort of a refocusing on the, the career of Benedict Arnold uh, in the early days, but here you have this, uh, this American hero, and you, you raise the question, or, you, or I hope it raises the question in readers' minds, why this American hero in 1776 and 1780 turned his coat. This is, uh, I, I think, this broad context helps readers understand that sometimes loyalty in this war was situational, depending upon the uh, personalities, depending upon how people felt, how they were treated by, by their friends and, and their enemies. Uh, it determined how people looked at the war effort in a broader context. That Quebec campaign was the second a story of the 10. I found that to be extremely interesting because you had Ethan Allen almost competing with Benedict Arnold, both both coming at Quebec from different angles. They were indeed competing. You're absolutely right. And, and I'm, I'm glad that point came through. They did not like one another. These were yep. strong-ruled personalities, and you, you get a sense of how conflicting personalities could really affect uh, what went on in, in a military context. And and the, the example you pointed to is right on the money. It was interesting in that campaign. I wanted to get your opinion on that as to... Why was Quebec what they what's called the fourteenth colony in this story, Quebec? Why was Quebec so important? Uh, because it controlled the waterways, basically. I mean, we still it's a thousand miles from Maine, uh, long ways up there to send armies to fight. It was uh, and it was a, a long, broad front uh, as the war developed. I mean. Uh, what happened in 1775 and 1776 was a precursor to military operations that really continued right on, at least in, in some active way, through 1782. And, and then there was even right to the end, 1783, there were people thinking we may have to do something on, on the northern front. Yes, it controlled the waterways. Uh, the St. Lawrence to uh, uh, Quebec and Montreal was, was a critical area. Uh, the British could bring in armies, they could bring in supplies and threaten the Northern Theater, which they did throughout the war. The front also afforded an opportunity for the American rebels to move north. And even after they had been expelled in 1776, there was always in the back of the minds, uh, not only in uh, uh, those in New York State, but even Washington pondered every now and again, how vulnerable are the British and can we hit them there and throw them off balance? Then there was the, also the political uh, aspect of it. Wouldn't it be nice if Quebec, which was the bulk of organized Canada at the time, came in, as you mentioned, as the 14th colony? That really would round out uh, the revolution against the British. It would remove a threat to the north. It would unify the, uh, the colonies against Great Britain. So there, were, there was a, a great deal of political thought that went into this as well. I agree with you on the political. Washington tried to frame it all as us basically liberating the Canadians. 
being the reason behind the move up there. And it really, it didn't turn out to be that way. The Canadians actually sided with the British. It's interesting because you had Canadians generally of a British background or uh, or an American background having, having moved up there. Many of them did side with the revolution. They formed a couple of regiments uh, in the Continental Army. And these guys became exiles. I mean, when the, the Canadian front collapsed for the Americans, they had to retreat with the rest of the army, and they, they spent the rest of the war uh, south of the border, as it were, and, and most of them never did manage to return home. So this was uh, one part of the revolution that was defeated, and you had these exiles, several hundred individuals with their families in many cases, who had to resettle uh, in the new United States because they couldn't go home to Canada. It was, uh, there's good scholarship on that coming out, as a matter of fact. And the essay you read in the 10 key campaigns, I think, is a good, good foundation for that. What makes the 10 key campaigns different from other books on the American Revolution, you think? Well, I, I think it is that campaign focus. If you look at other books on the American Revolution, you will get uh, either a very, very broad picture of the war for independence without really going into the implications of a special, a particular campus, other than Trenton, Yorktown, Saratoga, which they always get a lot of focus, and that's fine. Uh, they should. Or these books focus on particular battles without looking at the broader context. The 10 Key Campaigns book, I think, fills a gap. Uh, it, because of the campaign focus, you, you get the broader context of why these campaigns and the fighting that uh, involved these campaigns was really important. I mentioned earlier that uh, you know people who, who wished, just I wish this war would just stay off of my bloody farm, let me alone. Well, they couldn't be let alone. Uh, this war swept over them. Uh, my essay on the Monmouth campaign, I think, is a good example in this regard. Uh, you had people caught in New Jersey, a small state, uh, with the chief British garrison on one side of New York City and the de facto rebel capital in Philadelphia on the other flank. Well, these poor people had no idea what was going to come at them from day to day. I mean, depending on how you count it up, uh, there were approaching 600 engagements in New Jersey during that war. Uh, most of them, uh, the, the vast majority, did not involve the main regular British and American armies. But when the Monmouth campaign, you had the main armies going at each other, uh, the British pulling out of Philadelphia, Washington's Continentals chasing them, across farmlands, touching on peoples who taken part in the war, and now they had no choice. The war came to their doorstep. So, so what do you do? Do you side with the British and take your chances, in effect, by leaving with the British Army because you couldn't stay behind? Probably thousands of loyalists did just that. Or do you come out, join the militia? Uh, lots of Americans did that. And then you take a look at the uh, New Jersey militia. Uh, people say bad things about the militia. I say some pretty good things about the militia because they'd been fighting for two years. And these guys picked up considerable experience. They knew when to stand and fight. They knew when to cooperate with the Continentals. Uh, they knew when discretion was the better part of valor. Uh, the old, he who fights and runs away lives to fight another day. And they did. Uh, so if you just focus on a particular battle, I think you miss that aspect of what was going on during the War for Independence. And, and you look at the essays on the American South, where civil society in many areas simply dissolved, and it came down to a fight between these militia outfits. Uh, Nathaniel Green taking his Continentals down there, and you've got some good essays on the South. 
uh, and how he was able to steady the the southern population and and bring some try to bring some order out of the chaos that became the military aspect of the southern revolution so this this is a different focus and i think it's an important focus and it does differentiate this book from an awful lot of other stuff that's been written on the american revolution not that the other stuff is bad this is just different and i think pretty good different what was the most surprising thing to you in your research that you found I think the most surprising thing was, I'm looking now at the Monmouth campaign. I had written with a a very good friend and co-author a a book called Fatal Sunday, George Washington, the Monmouth campaign, and the politics of battle. In that, I became really intrigued by how deep the challenge to George Washington's command really was during the Valley Forge winter, uh, late 1777, early 1778. And I think I developed it, uh, I developed it full scale in a separate book, which is reflected in this essay. And so your listeners fully understand what I'm talking about. George Washington had had a very bad 1777, and the Valley Forge experience was just scarring. Generals are hired to win wars, or at least not to lose them. And in 1778, early 1778, it occurred to many patriots uh, who became vociferous critics of the commander-in-chief because he was not winning that war. Historians have always known that Washington had his critics. What I found was that these critics were not just an annoyance. They were not just carping um, ideologues. No, these were patriots who firmly believed that they'd hired the wrong guy and that George Washington's command was under serious challenge, and that if he had not produced a credible performance in the Monmouth campaign, I think those critics would have come back in full cry. And I I hope I brought that out in the essay, because that was indeed the case, and and I was really surprised at how deep and how broad-based and how serious the challenge to Washington's command really was. And it's not surprising when you think about it. And as I mentioned, generals are supposed to win, or at least not to lose. So what is a responsible government supposed to do when they have uh, a man who many felt a great deal of personal affection for, but he's not winning the war? What do you do? You, you, you can't just say, better luck next time, George. I mean, you've got to demand results, and, and um, they were demanding results. Monmouth, in a tactical sense, just uh, the battle itself, was a tactical draw. Tremendous heat during that battle, right? Temperature above 100. Yeah. A lot of a lot of men yeah. dying yeah. just from but, heat uh, exposure and exhaustion. Yeah. But it was uh, the first time uh, our army stood to, stood toe to toe with the they British. They stood toe to toe. They never looked better. The British actually gave the Continental Army a great deal of credit for how well they fought. Thanks to von Steuben, right? Yeah, but Henry Clinton got back to he got his army back to New York to be redeployed. That's that is what his orders uh, demanded. But then Washington's aides, Alexander Hamilton, uh, leading, the, leading the pack, crafted what we can call a propaganda victory. They, you know, a tactical draw was not enough. I mean, it, it had to redress uh, and deal with the critics of late 1777, early 1778, and just put paid to what historians came to call the Conway Cabal. Just get it behind once and for all. And it did. That campaign really made George Washington the man on the white horse. I and mean, then he was he was unchallengeable for the rest of the war. I mean, people could complain, but he was never under serious threat 
uh, for the rest of the war. And that, that was the, the Monmouth campaign that really allowed him uh, some breathing space politically, that he's not constantly looking over his shoulder at people who might have been after his job, people who constituted a real serious political threat to his command authority. This is the campaign that put him over the top. And if you just look at the battle itself, you're not going to see that. But if you look at the political implications as the battle or as the campaign opened and the political results of the, uh, the campaign, then that broader context gives it to you. I can't emphasize strongly enough that it was the Monmouth campaign that allowed him to just put that Conway Kapal episode behind him. Uh, he, was, he was the commander-in-chief, unchallenged for the rest of the war. We'll return to our interview with Mark Edward Lender and the 10 key campaigns of the American Revolution right after this sponsor message. And now, back to our show. So of the 10 campaigns in the book, would you say Monmouth was the most important in terms of the outcome of the war? No, I wouldn't. And, Which one uh, would you say? I, I would say that uh, if you look at all of those campaigns, I don't think you can make a case for any of them being the one that won the war. And I'm, I'm going to say that I, I know I will have some, I, I may have some differences with my fellow authors on this, but uh, even Saratoga, which was so pivotal in bringing the French into the war, uh, even Yorktown, which uh, was absolutely pivotal. I mean, you know, the, the British lose for the second time, they lose an entire army. Uh, even Trenton, which, uh, I mean, I, I grew up in, in Trenton. Uh, I grew up in New Jersey, uh, and it was an article of faith that, that uh, Trenton was the turning point. None of them were. It, it, what, I think what you get if you read these 10 essays is that together, they demonstrate that uh, the Americans had what uh, military historians today call strategic depth. They could absorb defeats. They had the numbers, they had the space, they had the time to allow the British, in, in effect, to uh, almost use up their political capital. They made the war extremely expensive for the British where the Americans absorbed their defeats, they had the numbers, they had the motivation, and they kept coming back. Uh, Trenton, and the, and the essay on Trenton is terrific in, in the 10 campaigns. It really is. And I think what comes out of that is that uh, the Americans were in desperate shape. They won the Battle of Trenton, and they won Second Trenton, and they won, they won Princeton. But then what did they do? They retreated. They got away. They knew darn well that they were not in shape to, to face the main British army. And if the British had known how desperate the American situation really was after those battles, I, I really think that William Howe would, uh, if he followed some of the advice of his junior officers, he would have come out swinging in a winter campaign just to try to finish Washington off. In fact, uh, I know we celebrate July 4th, but I can make a case for December 13th, 1776, being the American national holiday. That's the day William Howe decided that we'd done enough in 1776. The Americans are essentially whipped, and he put his army into winter quarters and figured we'll polish them off in the spring. And it was that breathing space that gave Washington the time to, uh, to get reinforcements, to get new supplies. And, and again, it's an argument for strategic depth. As desperate as things were, when push came to shove, you could collect enough people, pull together enough supplies, get yourself reorganized to deliver a punch that would at least stabilize the situation. 
the Americans, as bad as it was, they, uh, and the essay on the Philadelphia campaign is terrific. The loss of Philadelphia, loss of the Battle of Brandywine is lost. Philadelphia is lost. Uh, the disaster at Paoli when Anthony Wayne's troops are, uh, are surprised at night in a bayonet attack. Uh, the failed Washington counterattack at Germantown. The loss of Fort Mercer and Fort Mifflin on the Delaware River Force. And yet, and yet, the Army was able to go into Valley Forge for a winter encampment. As bad as it was, they survived. Not only that, they kept fighting during Valley Forge. Uh, they interdicted supplies trying to reach the British. They launched small-scale raids. Some worked, some didn't work. But the American army remained a force in being, and as long as they had a force in being, then you had militia and civilians who knew that the fight was not yet over. And again, it was that depth, uh, that ability to, to absorb the punch and come back that wore the British down. That, that's what I think were the most critical months of the entire revolution was the months, the winter spent at Valley Forge in 77, 78, uh, because the American spirit was tested. There were no shots fired at Valley Forge itself. Outside of it, in small skirmishes, yes. And in, but at the, there, it was just a matter of fighting the elements while the British were 22 miles away, enjoying it, living, living a good life in Philadelphia. <laughs> And our well, men were starving to death uh, and freezing in Valley yeah, Forge. They, but they, they hung in there. They a better life in Philly than the Continental Army enjoyed at Valley Forge. And, and, and again, I think the essay on uh, that brings out another aspect of what was going on here. I mean, wars are not always won on the battlefield, and, and, and frequently they're not. Uh, they're won by keeping your military together. And one of the key, the chief things you can, you can look at here is... Uh, by the spring of 1778, Washington was able to persuade Congress to make some radical changes in the commissary and quartermaster's departments. And two of the chief appointments were uh, you bring in Wadsworth as uh, quartermaster, as commissary general and, and Nathaniel Green as uh, quartermaster general. Nathaniel Green's got a great quote. I mean, he wanted, he was a young man. Uh, he, he just was after military glory. He wanted a line command. He wanted to fight. And when Washington, recognizing this young general's talent, said, look, you've got to take over quartermaster. It's a disaster. Green's comment was, was a classic. Who ever heard of a quartermaster in history? I mean, he wanted to be remembered as a, as a combat commander. But yet, commissary and quartermaster operations are, were the hinge on that ability to fight. And not only that, money. When money became available supplies got through. When money was unavailable, it was a chore to get stuff pulled together. And all of that, Washington was, and this is one of the differences between a, a general and a commander-in-chief. Uh, Washington could take those various threads, pull them together, and, and, and make a coherent war effort, or try to make a coherent war effort out of what was a pretty desperate situation. But he understood how commissary and logistics functions uh, worked. I mean, he had been a young officer on the Virginia frontier during the Seven Years' War. Uh, his Virginia regiment didn't fight all that often, but he knew what it took to keep these individuals in the field. You know, it's a lesson he never forgot, and he, he brought that experience to his command of the Continental Army. Uh, he, he knew finance, uh, that, that if you did not have the money to, uh, to lubricate the wheels of commissary and, and quartermaster operations, you were in real trouble. 
So uh, if you read Washington's correspondence during that time, uh, he was not a Wall Street financier, but he, he knew darn well that if the money wasn't available, uh, the war effort was going to be in deep, deep trouble. And uh, in, in 1780, when continental finances were in the verge of collapse, perhaps they did collapse. I don't know how you want to define collapse, but things got pretty desperate. Washington knew it was money. And the man had a very, very wide-ranging grasp of military fundamentals and, and how it all could relate to a, a winning war effort. And I think by looking at, again, the campaign focus that these essays take, you get that sense of Washington as commander-in-chief that you wouldn't get uh, in a more cursory overview of the war effort or even a more specific view of a particular battle. We'll return to our interview right after this message from our sponsors. And now, back to our show. Would you please give us a brief overview of how some of the 10 key campaigns played their role in the War of Independence? The beginning of the war, and what a prelude, Lexington and Concord, all the drama of that, and uh, I know it's had a lot of hype, but but some episodes in history deserve their hype. I mean, it was a a dramatic opening to uh, the military phase of the revolution. And it was interesting for a couple of reasons. Uh, First of all, uh, it proved that the British Redcoat was not invincible. And uh, the the British really had this idea that uh, their professional army, and they were among the best troops Europe could field, that their professional army would sweep this rabble away. Well, what they found out was uh, the rabble was quite numerous and it was pretty heavily armed. I mean, they, they could gather and in, in specific instances make things very, very difficult for a professional army. The other lesson, the flip side of the coin, which the Americans did not learn, things went so well at Lexington and Concord that uh, they began to think that the British, in effect, would be a pushover. And when the British sent new commanders over and heavily reinforced them, they found out that these redcoats probably took the cause of George III about as seriously as they took their own cause of independence. And that wasn't a war for independence at the beginning. We have to keep in mind that for the first full year of that war, I mean, the Declaration didn't come out until July of 1776. There was a, a, over a full year of combat uh, even before it became a war for independence. They found out the hard way that these British regulars were pretty good, that the Hessian auxiliaries that the British brought over were were pretty good. So what you found was that there were lessons to be learned and unlearned from these first series of engagements. We found the same thing in Canada, that there was a political dimension to the war right from the beginning, and we mentioned earlier that there was this desire to, to hit the British hard in what if there had been a 14th colony, I mean, where would the British have brought people in? They would have had to have launched an amphibious operation all the way from Great Britain. As it was, they attacked New York in 1776, coming down from Halifax. Now, what if the Americans had taken Canada in 1775 and denied British that opportunity? That that would have complicated things immeasurably. So you, people are learning that uh, you, you've got to play the politics correctly in order for the military aspect of it to work correctly. And you've got to have effective military in order to have an effective political thrust. So uh, these were interconnected, very interrelated uh, aspects of the war. Then they learned, I think they learned early as well, that morale was a huge factor, that without uh, a secure civilian base behind your war effort, it's going to be tough to maintain it. 
uh, which is why, and, uh, and again, we go back to that essay on, on Trenton and Princeton and the, the Monmouth essay, that loyalism was a genuine threat to the revolution. There were an awful lot of American loyalists. People argue over how many were there. Well, we really don't know. Uh, the old John Adams, a third, a third, and a third, a third patriot, a third neutral, a third loyalist, probably not true. Uh, it may have been maybe only 20% were loyalists, but a lot of it was situational loyalty, too. Who was winning at the time? And then you'd seem to have more popular support, and, and which would fade away when the other side rebounded. Uh we really, we really don't know, but there were a lot of loyalists, and they were a genuine threat internally, which is why Patriot authorities cracked down on them. And I think in several of the essays, you will get a sense of how brutal the Civil War was. I and mean, it's one thing to fight for democracy is not to practice it. They were not about to allow freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, uh, let alone the right to bear arms, to the loyalist population. Patriots made no bones about cracking down on the loyalists, and, and if exiling them and confiscating their property is what it took, that's what it took. If killing them was what it took, that's what it took. This was uh, a, a very, very grim business that accompanied the, uh, the more traditional military campaigns, but it was part, part and parcel of the revolution, and I think these essays give you some sense of how desperate the uh, the internal civil war was outside of the fighting between the major armies. We did an episode on Kings Mountain uh, a few months ago. I found that to be extremely interesting research, and the chapter or the 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 key campaign chapter in this book uh, covered that pretty well. Uh, there was a ma- there was a fight for uh, for hearts and souls of countrymen, and a fight against loyalists, and it had that fight that fight tilted the whole South. When the news of the uh, rebel success, a uh, continental army, well, these guys were basically guerrilla fighters brought in from they the, were, well, Yeah, they, they were the over mountain men and, and militia. And you're absolutely right, John. I think that battle uh, is one of the, the, the key illustrations of how desperate the Civil War became. In the Battle of Kings Mountain, there was only one British regular there. It was Patrick Ferguson, the commander of the Loyalist troops. And he was faced off against uh, rebel irregulars and, and uh, Carolina militia. And, you know, it, it, it also speaks to how, how desperate and far-flung the Loyalist war effort was. A lot of the guys who went down fighting and were captured, some, some captured at Kings Mountain, were in fact from New Jersey. Hmm. They had been uh, tossed out of New Jersey. Uh, some of them had, had to leave as a result of the Monmouth campaign. They enlisted in Loyalist regiments. And those regiments were deployed uh, on behalf of the crown uh, wherever they were needed. And here you had guys, how many hundreds and hundreds of miles from home, who have probably never heard of Kings Mountain before in their lives, and there's no reason they should have. And here they are fighting for their lives um, in, in, in just a desperate situation. And what? Uh, drumhead court-martials uh, to some of the most prominent loyalist leaders, what, nine were hanged before mm-hmm. in some front of their own families uh, before some senior militia officers finally said enough. And even that uh, did not stop the violence in, in the uh, in the Carolina and uh, Georgia backcountry. Uh, but it, it was uh, a body blow to uh, the British war effort. I mean, it was Henry Clinton looking at it from afar. He was the British commander in chief. He was, he was uh, in New York. But he heard about it, and he knew darn well how serious it was. And if you read his memoirs, uh, Clinton, I don't know the exact quote, but this is a pretty close paraphrase, that 
after the loss at Kings Mountain, the British war effort was a, a succession of just downhill all the way and until the final defeat at Yorktown. Because they lost the heart of the loyalists. They did lose. I mean, it's tough to to uh, to rally loyalists uh, after the example of what had happened at Kings Mountain. I mean, there are other pretty pretty nasty examples as well. I mean, in North Carolina, uh, there was the Piles massacre or the Piles hacking match when uh, a, a doctor, a loyalist named Pyle, uh, organized a fairly good sized number. About 300 loyalists who, who ran afoul of Light Horse Harry Lee's uh, Continental Light Dragoons, who came marching in, and the loyalists mistook them for British dragoons or loyalist dragoons, Bannister Tarleton's British Legion. They were also loyalists, and they found out too late. By then, the American dragoons were on them. It was just saber play, and it was just a slaughter. After that, I mean. Uh, Incident after incident. I mean, and Clinton was right. I mean, after Kings Mountain, you, you had incidents like the Piles uh, massacre, smaller engagements like that. But uh, you, you had Calpins after that. The the back country simply was lost to the British, and all the manpower, all the resources, simply couldn't be focused on the British war effort. Uh, it was just a, it was such that they could fight. It was a fight for survival. Uh, not not a fight to uh, to go on a major offensive against the rebels. It was uh, an, a, again testimony to how nasty the revolution could be at the local level. It it really was a, a bad business. That's, that's not the kind of stuff you hear in Fourth of July speeches, but it was it was the reality of it. It really was. You're you're very knowledgeable <laughs> in your history. I do only have a few minutes remaining though before my next interview. What I'd like what I'd like to do at this point is I'm going to name the campaigns 1 through 10 uh, that are listed in your book. And if you could give me just a brief uh, highlight as to what makes each one special as I read them off, I would appreciate it. And that'll be our way of introducing the book to our listeners. Campaign campaign 1, let it begin here. Well, what you're talking about is uh, Lexington Green and Concord. And what you have is this demonstration that British regulars are not invincible. You have a demonstration that for all of the bad things said about American militia, with competent leadership, with good intelligence, uh, they could form a formidable fighting force. This is something that uh, the British learned the hard way, and the Americans took that to heart, but they also made the mistake of thinking that, okay, free men fighting in the militia are going to have a fairly easy time against these British redcoats who were essentially automatons, both wrong. Uh, it set up the war, and I think it, it was a good a good introduction to what could happen on both sides. And that prompted the formation of the Continental Army and the appointment of General it, George it, Washington to head it. It did indeed. Campaign 2, I think we talked about pretty well, the 14th Colony, the Quebec Campaign. I think we covered that one pretty well. Campaign 3... All London was afloat. You know, you, you, you got a situation here where all of London, and this, uh, I, I, I'm trying to think of where that actual quote came from. It, it gives you some sense of what the British had to go through to get their people over here. Now, let's face it, to move armies, to, to organize a, a major military effort far overseas was uh, a, a major accomplishment, and I think it was testimony to the professional skill of the British Army in the 18th century, uh, something that the Americans had underestimated. 
the Americans did compensate. Let's face it. Uh, we mentioned strategic depth. The Americans did find a way to counter an awful lot of this. But uh, what you've got there is a situation of uh, what the Americans were facing in a, in a really, really competent British military. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying that they were unbeatable. They weren't. We know that they were. They were, you could beat them. But uh, let's not underestimate the Redcoats. And by the way, the maps in, in this book are absolutely fantastic, listeners. The maps really give you an idea of where each of these campaigns took place and how and under what leadership. And by the way, that quote is attributable to Daniel McCurtain, a recently discharged Maryland soldier in the city of New York, who summed it up much better when he saw the massive British fleet off the New Jersey shore. He said, yeah. in about 10 minutes, the whole bay was full of shipping as it ever could be. I declare that I thought all London was afloat. Was afloat. It's a, it's a great quote, and I, I'd forgotten who'd given it. Let's keep the, let's let your uh, listeners know also that, to that point in British history, gathering that fleet and getting it over to New York was the biggest uh, amphibious military effort in British military history. That's how importantly the British saw this whole thing. And that's how skilled they were in organizing it. The times that try men's souls, the crossing and the 10 crucial days is campaign four. And that applies to? That is the Trenton and uh, the Trenton-Princeton campaign. And it is that remarkable rebound of, it's also a lesson the British learned. This is what happens when you let up on somebody and you have the competent leadership, a little bit of reinforcement and resupply and time to heal. Even a beaten army can come up and bite you again. And Washington proved as much. Campaign five, Gentleman Johnny's Great Gamble, Ticonderoga to Saratoga. It was a great gamble and it misfired. Gentleman Johnny, they didn't call him Gentleman Johnny during the... Uh, during the war, or if they did, they didn't do it to his face. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> John was, Burgoyne, uh, listeners. Burgoyne came down under strength, and again, we go back to that strategic depth. Uh, the Americans absorbed the initial losses around Ticonderoga and then swallowed him. So uh, I think that essay is a, a very, very good uh, example of what we're talking about, the American ability to absorb hits and come back. Campaign 6, The Empire Strikes Back, the Philadelphia Campaign of 1777. Give you some sense of how good the British were uh, and how bad they were. <laughs> it was, they had a, if you look at the map, you can get from New York to Philadelphia across New Jersey. Just follow the New Jersey Turnpike today. That would have been the line of attack. And in fact, the British were all the way, they were in New Brunswick, uh, that far west. So you had maybe a four-day march to Philadelphia. Instead, they blow a couple of months going by sea. And this is how bad the, the judgment of William Howe really was. And again, he was focused on Philadelphia. He forgot about John. He didn't forget about John Burgoyne. He just figured he didn't have to help Burgoyne. He was, he was focused on Philadelphia. But on the ground, he was very good. He, he, he won a, a fine battle at, at Brandywine, not decisive. Washington was able to pull back, keep his army in, in troop. Tactically, the surprise of Paoli was, was devastating. Again, the Americans are beaten, but not, not destroyed. Washington's counterattack at Germantown fails. Again, the British win. The Americans are not destroyed. The Delaware River forts, Mifflin on the Pennsylvania side, Mercer on the New Jersey side. They lose the forts. The British are able to reinforce or supply. Uh, the Royal Navy can supply Philadelphia by by the river. But again, the Americans are not. They're down, but they're not out. And to win a war, you've got to get the enemy out. 
Campaign 7, we covered the Monmouth Campaign. Campaign 8, Charleston to Kings Mountain. I think we covered that. Campaign 9, Cowpens to Guilford Courthouse. And Campaign 10, En Avant to Victory, the Allied March to Yorktown, June through October 1781. Yep. Not only was Yorktown, uh, Yorktown was a triumph of intelligence, alliance with the French. I mean, Washington was great. On, on masking what he was going to do. He had Henry Clinton convinced that New York was going to be attacked. Uh, by the time Washington and Rochambeau had their people moving south, it was too late for, for Clinton to really help uh, Cornwallis down in Virginia. It was a triumph of logistics to get that army down there intact at a time when, when continental finances were in their death throes. They scraped together enough. They pretty much privatized the logistics, working with Robert Morris in Congress. He got private contractors to extend credit. They got that army down there, both armies down there, the French and the American armies. And Cornwallis didn't stand a chance. Uh, he, 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 by the time he realized he was boxed in, he was, he was boxed in too, too tightly. And then, of course, you had the fleet action, uh, the French fleet preventing the British from breaking through and the Battle of the Capes and, and Chesapeake Bay. Uh, Cornwallis is finished. Mark Lender, we want to thank you very, very much for being our guest today and for your book, The Ten Key Campaigns of the American Revolution. Found it absolutely excellent reading. I recommend this to all our listeners. It's out there now, The Ten Key Campaigns of the American Revolution. Don't miss it. Well, I hope your les- listeners listen to you. I appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye.